0: We'll hear argument now, number 94-172, John Bruce Hubbard versus the United States. Mr. Morris.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case concerns the applicability of Title 18, United States Code, Section 1001, often referred to as the false statement statute, to statements of the petitioner made in the course of bankruptcy court proceedings. Section 1001, of course, prohibits the making of knowingly false statements in any matter within the jurisdiction of any department of the United States. Our position is essentially twofold. If there is an honest debate over whether the term department includes the courts, then the rule of lenity requires resolution of that ambiguity in favor of the accused. And secondly, and alternatively, the petitioner seeks this court's approval of the judicial function exception to 1001, and or related limitations placed upon Section 1001 by the various courts of appeals that have reached this issue. Very briefly, the petitioner's three convictions under Section 1001 arose from three written responses made through counsel during the course of the bankruptcy proceedings. These responses were made to the bankruptcy trustee as a result of inquiries made by that trustee. The first two convictions arose from answers, to the bankruptcy trustee's complaint. And essentially those answers consisted of the words denied for the reason that the allegations in the complaint are untrue. The third conviction arose as a result of a discovery dispute. These answers were verified? No, they were not. Uh, the, the answer to the complaint was signed by counsel and signed by the petitioner, but not under oath. And the discovery response was not signed by the petitioner at all, only signed by counsel the discovery response arose as a result of the trustee asking for the production of certain documents from the petitioner. And the discovery response filed by counsel stated that the petitioner had turned over those documents to the prior trustee. Uh, Later on in the bankruptcy court proceedings, the bankruptcy judge issued an order directing the petitioner to turn over those documents, and they were turned over. Nevertheless, the petitioner was indicted for 1001 as a result of that response in the, in the discovery issue, and that comprised the third of the three convictions. Uh, first, I would like to address the question uh, that the determination whether 1001 applies at all uh, to the courts is a question that logically and necessarily precedes the determination whether the judicial function exception applies to 1001. This issue is not just fairly included Within the question presented for review, it is a necessary predicate to a determination of the propriety of the judicial function exception. Ours is a plain language argument. Congress used the word in
2: 1001, department. Congress
1: did not. Bramblett
2: stands in your way. Do you say we have to overrule Bramblett?
1: It is, Your Honor, dictum. In Bramblett, that stands in our way, and for that reason, we do not believe that the court will run into the problem of stare decisis, as the uh, government would suggest. Stare decisis, of course, carries particular weight in a statutory construction case, but not the kind of weight that it, it, the government suggests it should carry in this case, because, of course, we're addressing dictum, and we have asked the court to recede from the dictum in Bramblett. Well,
2: certainly, has been followed in the intervening years, hasn't it?
1: Well, the, the Courts of Appeals, because of Bramblett, have felt constrained to hold that such statement that to hold that 1001 applies to the courts because of the dictum in Bramblett, And it is with several misgivings that the Courts of Appeals have noted that. In fact, this is one such case, and the very first case after Bramblett was that type of case also. The well, organ what what,
0: what Bramblett decided, though, and not really by way of dictum, was that it was not limited, 1001 was not limited to the executive branch. Yeah.
1: But, the, but the issue before Bramblett, Your Honor, was not a statement made to the judiciary. It was a statement made to the legislative uh, branch. Yeah, and in we, fact,
0: once, once you say it doesn't apply to the, it's not limited to the executive branch, but it extends to the legislative branch, it seems to me it's very hard to carve out of the statute a meaning that says it covers executive and legislative but not judicial. But
1: nevertheless, that's what the statute says. The plain language of the statute uses the word department. And Congress has defined the term department for us in Title 18, Section 6. And that definition of department is the executive department. And it was explained in the revisor's notes to that definition of department. What about Congress? I'm sorry? What about Congress? Is
3: Congress within within that definition?
0: no, the, it's, it states
3: well, that... Plain Bram- language Bram-
0: argument Bram- out the window. Bramblett held the... Con- it was applicable to Congress, didn't it?
1: And, w- and we are asking, even if you're looking at the holding of Bramblett, if the holding of Bramblett is deemed at issue, we're asking the court to recede from the holding in Bramblett. So you're not,
0: you're not really talking just about dicta.
1: Well, t- technically, yes, we are, because Bramblett did not involve... In the sense that Bramblett did not involve a statement to the judiciary, yes. If the court yes. finds that there's no principal distinction... Between the legislature and the judiciary, for the purposes of, of examining Br- Bramblett, then yes, indeed, we're asking the court to receive from the holding. Well, court. there
3: is certainly no principal distinction for purposes of making a plain language argument. Well, there isn't. If you want to make a plain language argument, you must ask us to overrule Bramblett.
1: Yes, and, and Bramblett runs counter to the plain language argument and to the definition supplied by Congress of the term department. You, you attach think- me, excuse me.
4: When you say recede, you mean overrule? Yes, overrule
1: if we're going to view it as the holding of Bramblett is at issue. But recede, if we're going to re, uh, view Bramblett as only standing in the way of the petitioner's argument as far as the dictum is concerned.
5: Do you attach any significance to the fact that uh, Bramblett was not just any statement to Congress, but rather was in support of a claim made at the dispersing office of Congress?
1: Yes, and that carries particular significance in drawing the distinctions between administrative, and adjudicative functions that have been drawn in the judicial function exception. Uh, If we are to understand why the courts of appeals have had such widespread acceptance of the judicial function exception and the justification for the distinction drawn between housekeeping functions and adjudicative functions, all we need to do is look at Bramblett and see why that happened. And the Second Circuit in the master poll decision, when that circuit adopted the judicial function exception, probably set forth the most cogent explanation of that distinction. And the poll decision stated that in viewing Bramblet and what it was limited to, it was limited to a statement made to the dispersing office. It was limited to the legislature as far as administrative function was concerned. And therefore, Masterpol said the reason why the courts of appeals are justified in drawing this judicial function exception is so that bramblet applies to the legislature in the same way that 1001 will apply to the judiciary, only insofar as the administrative functions of the courts are concerned. So in that respect... There's no
6: textual basis, though, for that distinction. You agree with that, I take it? I mean, that's that's a nice way to draw a line, but it doesn't reflect anything that's written in the statute. Isn't that fair to say?
1: No, but the courts... Yes, it's fair to say, but the courts of appeals felt that that was a justified interpretation of the statute because Congress never intended that that statute would would apply to statements such as those made by the petitioner in this case, or certainly not to every misrepresentation made in every federal court.
4: Counsel, if similar statements had been made before an ALJ, for example, an administrative adjudicator, then you recognize that that would certainly be covered?
1: If it fell within the adjudicative function, arguably...
4: An ALJ who was acting inside the executive branch, but making a determination as, as a prior?
1: Under that factual scenario, it may be arguable that there would be a, an exception to the applicability of 1001 as well, because that is an adjudicative adjudicative function of the ALJ, even though it's within the executive
4: branch. So you branch. say adjudicative functions cross the board, yes. even for something that plainly is an agency... Or Department of Government? Although, of
3: well, course... now you turn out to be the enemy of plain language. Well... There's nothing like that in, in the statute. Of al-
1: although that issue is not precisely before the court, I think that argument can be made. If, if we are going to take the judicial function exception uh, at its word and what it represents in terms of how limited 1001 should be in the judicial proceeding, I think an argument can be made for that proposition. And you distinguish although,
4: between the, the two... Uh, Can you give any reason why, if you have an adjudicative function exception, it should apply to courts but not administrative agency adjudications?
1: I I would rely upon what all the circuits have held, and that is that 1001 was, there's no indication of congressional intent that 1001 would have that broad scope, that there have to be some
4: limitations. And the reason... Is there any, once we get away from the plain language, Mm -hmm. is there any rationale for keeping the courts out, by keeping the administrative adjudicators in?
1: Only, only, under, only because of the rationale of the judicial function exception itself. Beyond that, no. Yeah, that, would, that could be a problem in that scenario.
3: And, and you would exclude congressional adjudicative functions? What, what, would, they, what would they be? Well,
1: I, as, I, as I stated, I think an argument can be made, that if, if it's acting in an adjudicative function, that the rationale of the judicial function exception could apply to those situations. What, what, now, when does it act in,
3: in an adjudicative capacity?
1: When it takes on the...
3: Impeachment? Uh, when it,
1: well, when, it, when it's acting in the same fashion as a court, the same functions as a court. I know that. What, what, when is that?
5: Well, you mean when it's holding hearings.
1: Yes, holding hearings. Holding hearings? Witnesses, is it, well, witnesses...
5: But your point is that, that it's not a claim against the government in those situations.
1: Correct.
3: Well, I'm, I'm trying to know what, what you're carving out of, of the congressional coverage, which we have said exists. You're carving out committee hearings? You think that is an adjudicative function? It,
1: it may it may be. It may not be. I think it would turn on individual facts. I know. What do you say, uh, Well, I, I think it could be, and I think the argument could be made. we will have to is, litigate this in the future, so,
7: right?
3: The, yes. Try to figure out where this line goes. It, it, yes.
0: There's simply yeah. nothing in the statute, though, that suggests any sort of a... A judicial function exception for anything. The courts who have reached that result have tried, have tried to do it on the basis of comparing it with the coverage that the Bramblet actually said uh, ca- ca- extended to the le- uh, legislative function. But without Bramblet, I don't think there ever would have been any effort to find a judicial exception.
1: Well, without Bramblet, I think the argument. Would, preva- would have prevailed in the courts of appeals that without you Bram- oh,
0: might apply well to come ju- up and said this applies to the executive department only but you would never say there's an exe- there's a judicial exception that extends through the executive department as well as uh, excluding legislative and judicial
1: well the the judicial function exception of, a cor- of course is a, is an outgrowth of the bramblet decision and it flowed from morgan's discussion of traditional trial tactics and how those should not be within the ambit of 1001.
2: Well, and Mr. That... Morris, uh, let me ask you in this case whether the false statements that were made in the course of the bankruptcy proceeding could be punished under any other provision of federal law.
1: Arguably, yes. They could have been punished as perhaps obstruction of justice, as contempt. <laughs> Certainly the discovery response would subject subjected to the uh, contempt powers of the bankruptcy judge if there had been a violation of an order. Certainly, Rules 11 and Rules 37. Rule 11 sanctions against the parties or their litigants and Rule 37 sanctions for abuse of the discovery process. The and perjury
2: statute wouldn't cover it because they weren't under oath?
1: That's correct. And, and therein lies one of the anomalies of the government's interpretation of 1001. Perjury, which carries a greater penalty than 1001, would create the anomaly that a person who makes a false statement in court not under oath would be subjected to a greater punishment than a person who is under oath and makes a false statement. And that's the type of unintended consequence that the courts of appeals were concerned with in carving out the, the judicial exe- uh, function exception and in, in particular coming to the conclusion that 1001 uh, is not a boundless statute and Congress never intended it to Mr. be such. Morris, do you know if
5: this statute has been applied to unsworn statements in committee hearings that turn out to be false?
1: No, I do not, Your Honor. The petitioner's statements we would submit if the court is going to uh, approve the judicial function exception squarely falls within the adjudicative functions of the court. And if the exception is, pr- is approved, he should prevail. There is also a related uh, private so civil. I just
4: wanted to make sure that I un- understood you correct- correctly. Did you mean to say that perjury is punished less severely than a false statement under?
1: Yeah, well, my understanding is that the perjury statute uh, carries five years and $2,000 and that a violation of 1001 carries five years and $10,000.
3: You said it the other way.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I I misspoke. I apologize. Uh, The petitioner is also seeking relief under the private civil litigation exception, as it's so called from the Second Circuit's D'Amato case, which was also adopted by the Eleventh Circuit in London. And those cases Mm -hmm. held that 1001 does not apply to civil litigation where the government is not a party. The rationale of those decisions applies here as well. And unless there are any further questions... I will reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal.
0: Very well, Mr. Morris. Uh, Mr. Brass, we'll hear from you.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there is no judicial function exception to Section 1001. The so-called judicial function exception conflicts with the plain text of the statute. It has no basis in the history of the statute or in this Court's decisions, and it is not needed to protect constitutional rights or traditional trial tactics. Before I get to those points, however, we recognize that Petitioner now raises a broader challenge, not raised in his petition for certiorari. Petitioner now says that Bramblett was incorrectly decided, and that Section 1001 does not apply false statements made to the courts. In Bramblet, this court held squarely that Section 1001 is not limited to false statements made to the executive branch, but that the term department extends broadly and includes all three branches of government.
5: Yes, but isn't it true that the history of this statute was one of false claims against the government, usually monetary claims, and the particular false statement in Bramblet was in support of a monetary claim made to the disbursing officer? So isn't it conceivable that one could say the holding goes only to those departments of the judiciary or the legislature that perform similar functions to the departments in the executive branch that process claims against the government?
8: No, Justice Stevenson, primarily for two reasons. Uh, First, the court expressly declined to rely on the nature of the government function uh, being carried out in Bramblett. It was suggested the court
5: declined to rely on it. Secondly, I'm, I'm not sure the opinion that that's a correct reading of the opinion. Where did, how did, what, what do you rely on for that
8: statement? Bramblett, it was argued, and the, the court noted, uh, that the matter involved, and this is on page 509 of the opinion, uh, was within the jurisdiction of the Treasury Department, and uh, the misstatements could be taken, therefore, to be misstatements to the Treasury, because the money would come out of the Treasury. That was basically a disbursement rationale. In other words, because the false statement would take money from the government, it's
5: like false claims, and the court should approve it on that basis. Yeah, but that's that's what you rely on for saying that it was. You you think the rationale would apply to an unsworn statement at a committee hearing?
8: Yes, and in fact, the the District of Columbia Circuit uh, held as much in the Poindexter case. the statutory reason for, for that interpretation is that the original false statement provision only went to false statements made to collect payment on false claims. That statute was amended, broadened, to include false statements to cheat, defraud, or swindle the government. When this court, in the Cohen decision, interpreted that phrase, still only to reach monetary claims, the court deleted the purpose element entirely. And substituted the "in any matter" clause. That clause was interpreted later. Congress did. Congress. Congress did. I'm sorry. That clause was interpreted later by the court in United States versus Gilliland to remove uh, the restriction to monetary frauds and to broaden the statute to false statements that might pervert any authorized government function. That lack of a functional distinction was echoed by this court in United States versus Rogers, where the court rejected the notion. That false statements to an investigatory agency—in that case, it was the FBI and the Secret Service—would not come within the sc- scope of Section 1001. Uh, the court held in that case that Section 1001 does not make functional distinctions, and that any matter means any matter.
3: Mr. Brass, suppose—I mean—suppose uh, I, I, mean, um, suppose I think that uh, uh, that the case was uh, Bramlett was was incorrectly decided. Uh, it would not be uh, an unusual uh, phenomenon for a court uh, to narrow a, uh, uh, a bad prior holding uh, in such a way that you're not overruling the case, but you nonetheless do not follow the full rationale of the case. So why couldn't we simply say, if we think that Bramlett was incorrectly decided, that, that department doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean Congress uh why couldn't we say we we will go along with bramblet uh insofar as it has been applied to congress but we won't take the further step which would be logical if you believe bramblet was right of extending it to the judiciary as well what would be so terrible about that
8: well if if the court took the approach of only applying bramblet to congress Then the court would essentially be overturning the overarching rationale of the case.
3: Sure, but I'm I'm saying I, I, I'm under the impression that's quite a common thing. Uh, It's how the common law courts uh, develop their law. You you, you regard the holding of an earlier case that was a stinker of a case to be a very narrow holding, regardless of what it said, what it held, what it held was that Congress is is within the meaning of the department. It said that the judiciary, I mean, implied that the the judiciary was as well. But that was you know. We don't have to follow that.
8: That approach, uh, we believe, would suffer the same faults as overturning the case in its entirety in the following sense. The the Court's special regard for statutory sir, decisis is based in part on Congress's ability, if it is not like the holding that the Court has with respect to a statute, to change the statute um, in reaction to that holding. Congress did not change or amend Section 1001 in response to this Court's decision in And in the 40 years since Bramblett was decided, this court and the lower federal courts have based many decisions on this court's interpretation of the statutory language in Bramblett. For example, in Yermian and in Rogers, this court based decisions on Bramblett's holding that the 1934 amendment was not intended to narrow the scope of the statute. Uh, In addition, federal prosecutors have for decades relied on this court's interpretation of the statute in Bramblett to prosecute under Section 1001 false statements made to the courts uh, for the court to change course and essentially.
5: Uh, uh, yes, but you're asking us to change course, and a lot of courts of appeals have thought this was not really what was intended and have developed this kind of ironic judicial exception. Uh, their stereocytes argument cuts both ways, is what I'm suggesting, because there's a law out there that does support this exception.
8: There's law out there that supports the exception. By we several get- courts. We would contend that that law is not based on the text of the statute, not based on any
5: discernible history, and not based on any legitimate policy rationale. Well, can't one read the definition of department where it says it means the executive department unless the context indicates otherwise? And couldn't one say the context does indicate otherwise when there's a monetary claim against another branch of the government, such as the dispersing officer of the legislature or one of our dispersing officers? That's a similar claim. You'd say that context indicates you ought to treat those legislative and judicial functions as departments for the purpose of this statute.
8: After the statute was amended in 34, and in light of this Court's holding in Gilliland, we we do not agree that you can read context to give any special sort of a notice to false statements made in connection with false claims. Whatever monetary attachment the false statement provision once had, it no longer has. Um, The context indicating otherwise was interpreted by this court in Bramblich primarily to take account of the evolution of the statute over time.
6: Does the context uh, refer literally only to the words of the statute, uh, or does the context include the the historical understanding uh, behind those words? For example, if you're going to apply it to the judicial branch across the board, then I suppose in theory uh, a lawyer making a closing argument Uh, who allegedly misrepresents facts is going to be indictable under this statute. Would you agree? If the lawyer intentionally misrepresents
8: facts, the lawyer may be prosecutable under Section 1001. However, in a closing statement, for example, the lawyer is generally not taken to be stating facts that he believes exists but rather to be summing up what has gone on during the trial
6: well let's, let's say that's that's one way there's, this, there's a difference though between a closing argument and the reference to facts there uh, and the factual implications of entering a plea uh, which in fact is yes. a distinction that you recognize well when when we bear in mind the fact that historically a lawyer who is claimed to have made a misrepresentation in closing argument, is usually dealt with, by an objection, uh, a statement by the judge saying to the jury, take your own recollection of the evidence. Uh, This is just argument. Uh, You don't have to accept his statement of the fact. That is for you to decide. Isn't that part of the context in which we should determine whether the statute, in fact, applies? The context here being that there is a settled practice for dealing with these problems, Uh, and it would be rather startling to assume that suddenly this settled practice had been uh, overlaid by, uh, by uh, a, uh, the creation of an indictable offense. Would that be a proper contextual argument, as, as, as you are suggesting we should consider context, or as the statute thinks we should consider context?
8: It might be a proper contextual argument, except that we would take the position that the overlap of Section 1001 on top of as you say, more specific context, for example, this is the trial context, exists not only
6: in the judicial branch but also in the legislature and also as... So you're saying that if you do what I I was uh, exploring, in fact, you are going to read out a great deal of the ostensible application of the statute? That is correct. Um, So we shouldn't do what I was suggesting? (laughs) That that is my position. Oh, is that your position? Uh,
8: (laughs) Section To be more specific, Section 1001... It does overlap um, many more specific prohibitions and ways of dealing with things in the judicial branch and outside of it. In the judicial branch, it overlaps perjury, as has been suggested. Obstruction also overlaps perjury, for that matter. Um, outside of the judicial context, and this is an important point, we believe, Section 1001 also overlaps perjury there, because perjury applies to agency hearings and false verifications. Moreover, Section 1001 overlaps with many more specific false statement prohibitions that exist outside of the judicial branch, mostly in the executive branch. If Section 1001 were read not to apply where a more specific prohibition applies, you would cut the guts out of the statute, which was intended to be a broad statute. Moreover, as a general matter, this Court has never taken the position that criminal statutes ought to be interpreted narrowly to minimize or eliminate areas of overlap. That
9: would, in our view, conflict with the strong presumption against implied repeal. The you, court are, you are supposed to interpret an ambiguous statute in the direction of lenity. And why isn't it ambiguous? That is to say, where the term department is means executive department, unless the context shows the term is intended to describe executive, legislative or judicial. And the context here would seem ambiguous in respect to judicial wouldn't it? If you look at the function of the judiciary, the percentage of instances in which people make statements in order to get money out of the government, I would imagine is much smaller than in the executive or the legislative branches. That's where the statute was aimed. But why isn't it at least ambiguous, given all the considerations that have been brought up? And then once it's ambiguous, why can't you say, yes, executive, legislative, but not judicial, because the context doesn't call for judicial.
8: Well, firstly, in terms of the context, we disagree that the context is ambiguous. And particularly if you compare it with the legislative context, I don't believe that there is any distinction that you can make. I suppose the distinction might be that
6: people
9: very often go to Congress, very often, in order to get money from the United States government. Uh, When they come into court the instances of their trying to get money from the United States government, while significant, is smaller, uh, significantly smaller than the instances in which they're trying to get money from Congress or the executive branch. The
8: 1934 Amendment to the Act was passed um, mostly at the urging of the Department of the Interior, which was concerned about um, falsifications of statements made in connection with hot oil shipments. Those false statements were not made in any respect to take money out of the Uh, federal government. Um, The amendment to the statute at that point, and I can't emphasize this too much, was was meant to take out the need to prove monetary fraud, and rather to reach false statements that might pervert any authorized government function. The view otherwise would be contrary to
9: this court's decision in Rogers. So, So when I go back to legislative history, I would find that money has nothing to do with this statute. That, in fact, what Congress wanted to do was to say, If you make a false statement to the postman, you say, hey, I I used to live on Apple Street. Indictable offense, even though it's not under oath, because now he may go to the wrong place. That's what Congress intended to do. The limitation
8: that you are looking for, we believe, would be provided by the materiality requirement in Section 1001. Uh, Materiality as defined by this Court in Cungus, which itself relied on the District of Columbia's circuits, decision in Weinstock. The postman will go to the wrong address. It's material, extra work. Well, I defer to uh, the court's decision on that matter. But, uh, but I, nonetheless, the point remains that in 1934, Congress did intend to reach non-monetary fraud. The amendment in 1934 completely removed the need to prove um, that the false statement was geared to take money from the federal government.
4: Mr. Brass, even if one accepts that the concern is making false statements to the government, what about the distinction that the Second Circuit made in the motto that Mr. Morris brought up at the end of his argument, that is, at least excise civil litigation between private parties, unlike agency adjudication where one of the parties is the government. Here we have no government interest being adjudicated, only private parties. Why shouldn't that be taken out?
8: In our view, the decision of the Second Circuit in D'Amato was basically a different way of saying that the Second Circuit didn't agree with Bramblett in the first place, because the Second Circuit was essentially saying that a lie in a judicial context is only going to fall within 1001 if the lie was essentially to the government as executive on the other side of the case that the lie to the court, which might pervert the court's decision-making functions, would not fall within the statute. We believe that that holding is fundamentally inconsistent with Bramblett, uh, and that perversion of judicial functions, just as perversion of executive or legislative, falls within the statute.
3: Mr. Brass, I'd feel better if I thought Bramblett was right. Can you persuade me that Bramblett was right? Then I wouldn't have all these problems. Was it indeed correct?
8: We believe that Bramblett was correctly decided. Uh, the court in Bramblett was influenced heavily by looking back at the legislative or the history of the statute through time. to say that? I was trying not to say legislative history.
5: <laughs> uh, in Bramblett, the court said that the, that Congress could not have intended to leave frauds such as this without penalty. And this is with a characteristic False claim, just like you usually make the executive branch, why couldn't one say, well, Bramblett is kind of shaky, and, but it, it's certainly sound to say it applies to claims like this in the judicial and, and legislative branch, but we don't have to read it as expansively as you suggest and and still, we'd still be faithful to the holding
8: if, if that were the
5: only or the primary rationale for the decision in Bramblet, it's not the primary rationale, but it's the holding. Well, the holding is that Congress didn't intend fraud such as this the claim for money made to the dispersing officer to be uh, uncovered by the statute. Yeah.
8: Justice Stevens, we take the holding in Bramblet to be that Section 1001 was not intended to be restricted to the executive branch, but rather reached the legislative and judicial That's correct,
5: branches. but it doesn't necessarily mean that it covers everything that happens in the judicial and, and legislative branch.
8: Yes, but the functional distinction that I believe you are making would be inconsistent with this court's decision in
5: Rogers. Because and, in Rogers, the Rogers court- Rogers an executive department case. You could say you have open season in the frauds to the executive department when you get out of the normal meaning of department, which is executive. Then it's fraud such as this, which Bramblett decided.
8: But then I believe you are caught by Bramblett's other hook, which is that the 1934 amendment was not intended to restrict the false statements to the executive branch. Bramblett recognized that before 1934. The statute applied to false statements made to any of the three branches
5: but those were in support of false claims at that time
8: yes and what the court decided in Bramblett was that the congress in 1934 intended to broaden the types of false claims that could be prosecutable without narrowing the false claims to any particular branch of government
5: no, but the broadening could cover cover the normal meaning of department which is the executive and also uh, the old-fashioned meaning for uh, legislative and
8: judicial fraud. The court defined department in Bramble to include all three and did not purport to make a distinction based on the function that that department was then performing.
0: Gilliland is not a false claim statute, is it? It's a, uh, Gilliland is not, not anybody making a claim against the government. That's the hot oil r-
8: report. That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, Gilliland uh, made a point, in fact, of holding that, the, that in order to of noting that in order to reach its conclusion, it had to hold that the statute was not limited to false claims. And that was decided in 1941? Yes, only seven years after the 1934 amendments, and notably seven years before the 1948 enactment of the definition of department in Section 6.
7: I, I take it the government argued in Bramlett that ultimately the Treasury would disperse these monies, and so there was a fraud upon the executive branch in any event?
8: The government had a narrower argument than argument today in, in Bramble. the government argued that uh, the dispersing office of Congress was an authority within the
7: meaning of uh, the term agency in the statute. So under the government's position, this conduct could have been punishable without the expansive reading that the Supreme Court gave in Bramble. That's correct. That is correct.
8: I'd like to turn now, if I may, to the question or the issue that was presented in this case, the existence of the judicial function exception to the statute. Uh, as petitioner has conceded, there is no textual basis for that exception. Uh, there's no basis in the legislative evolution of the statute, and there's no uh, basis in this Court's decisions. The exception, therefore, relies entirely on policy. A uh, petitioner says that a judicial function exception to the statute is necessary protect constitutional rights, or traditional trial tactics. Uh, The Constitution and uh, this country's traditions, however, have never protected a right knowingly to lie to the courts. Uh, It is simply not the case that Section 1001 will impede a plea of not guilty, because a plea of not guilty is not a statement of factual innocence. It's similarly not the case that Section 1001 will interfere with the right against self-incrimination, because the right to remain silent does not include the right to lie. It's also more broadly the case that Section 1001 won't unfairly hinder defense counsel. Defense counsel may still zealously challenge the probity or sufficiency of the government's case uh, without resorting uh, to knowing falsehoods. As this Court held in Nix versus Whiteside, Uh, The right to effective assistance of counsel does not include the right right to cooperation of counsel in perjury.
6: Isn't one of the things that we should worry about is not what theoretically would be covered by this, but by the sort of interoram effect of the statute, if it is going to have the meaning, the breadth that you give it. Uh, Take my example a moment ago of the lawyer who becomes too exuberant in final argument. Um, I suppose the, the, what we ought to worry about is not merely, in perhaps not at all, about the lawyer who just flatly lies to the jury uh, in, a, in a patent way, uh, but the lawyer who's close to the edge uh, in a case against the government and then finds himself next week being indicted uh, with, with six months of litigation facing criminal penalties to follow. Uh, Isn't that a reason for trying to trim the sails? And isn't the interorum effect perhaps a better reason uh, than, than merely a solicitude for letting the judiciary take care of its own problems?
8: I've got a number of responses. I guess, first of all, there's no reason to confine that argument to the judicial branch. People are represented by attorneys. In front of the legislature and in certainly in lots of agency instances. So that argument would not support an argument, uh, would not support a theory that simply accepted uh, judicial functions in courts. Uh, secondly, uh, the fear here, which is of prosecutorial overreaching, is not backed up by any statistics of Justice Department prosecutions. It's purely hypothetical. Well,
6: that's because they don't have the decision of this case as you want it handed down yet. Once they get it, they, they may be a little bit more uh a little bit more aggressive
8: we don't believe that there's much reason to think so because obstruction of justice under 1503 could currently be a basis for uh making such charges against a lawyer who has who has knowingly made false statements in courts
7: do do any of the separate states have uh statutes that specifically punish misrepresentations uh, in uh, judicial proceedings is there any state law jurisprudence
8: other than perjury, Your Honor? Yes. I do not I do not know.
5: May I also go ask, going back to the legislature, uh, you cited the Poindexter case as one. Are there, has the government ever prosecuted anyone other than Admiral Poindexter for false statements in congressional hearings? Do you know? I don't because know. There must the have been government. a lot of them over there throughout. I
0: don't.
5: <laughs> 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 I think Richard
0: Clientine Richard was prosecuted <clears throat> under the misdemeanor uh, section of this
8: of this statute, yeah.
7: of, of of course, that that is specifically covered by 18 U.S.C. 1505,
8: the obstruction statute for Congress and, and the Yes, and, and
7: that statute uh, has two parts, as I recall. It it prohibits a misrepresentation to a department, and then it has a specific uh, clause for congressional committees, which uh, indicates to me that the department does not include the Congress unless the statute specifically says so. Well,
8: in that statute, that that may be so, I. Uh, we agree that 1505 would cover false statements made to congress i will note however that the district of columbia circuit in poindexter did find otherwise so it's not completely clear
9: is that a general uh view of the your your office that those false statements that are prosecutable under 1001 in respect to a judicial or congressional proceeding must be such as they would support an obstruction of justice conviction I think it would generally be the case i don't is know it is it is it absolutely the case that is to say does it or does it not do you think extend beyond whatever the scope is of obstruction of justice well
8: obstruction of justice includes uh, the term corruptly and so the question there would be whether corruptly adds anything to the term intentionally um by its plain language it
9: may this might go well beyond and any kind of a false statement at all made to a clerk of a court, or what about a prisoner who writes a letter about prison conditions knowing it will be attached though unsworn? If it's a... About the... Cetera, you see.
8: If it's an intentional false statement of fact, it would be prosecutable under Section 1001. It, the court has recognized that the criminal law has not grown by any sort of neat design, but in many cases, and especially in this area, more by
9: accretion. Then a, a prisoner who says, uh, after all, uh, the food was, uh, you know, has 90,000 different complaints. And some of them are not true. Unsworn, in a letter, attached to the... That's all covered.
8: Intentional false statement would be covered so long as it was material. And the decision as to the breadth of Section 1001, as this court pointed out in Rogers, is not a decision for this court, but is rather a decision well, for But what if Congress. a
0: prisoner made a false statement to the warden? That would be covered under the narrowest reading of bramblet wouldn't it? Uh,
8: part of the executive branch. It certainly would, Your Honor. If there are no more questions, uh, my argument is concluded. Very well, Mr. Bress. Uh,
0: Mr. Morris, you have 15 minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. The breadth of the statute which the government is advancing today is truly extraordinary. And perhaps what all lawyers and litigants must be concerned about if the interpretation advanced by the government is adopted by the court is what happens if they lose a case in a federal civil court proceeding. Arguably, uh, statements can be obtained during the course of those proceedings in unsworn pleadings or oral representations to a court or a jury that would constitute probable cause sufficient for a charge of 1001. Are, the what conseq- if- are you suggesting
0: the consequences to the losing lawyer are different in a civil proceeding than in a criminal proceeding?
1: Uh, there are other implications involved in the criminal proceedings namely the constitutional implications that are not involved in the civil proceedings and it would seem to me that the uh, consequences are much more far-reaching in civil because of the uh, absence of those protections
0: and how about how about lawyers who lose cases before administrative law judges in the executive branch
1: it would seem to me under the government's interpretation uh, that 1001 applies to those situations and, as well, but, but
0: uh, un- under your interpretation, it would too, would it not? Yes. Uh, so I mean, un- we've got lawyers are going to have something to worry about no matter how this case comes.
1: Well, up. that brings us back to the government's discussion of, of And Why are you worried about losing lawyers? I, I'd, I'd be
3: more worried if I were a winning lawyer, uh, uh, winning against the government. Don't you think that's the real? Uh,
1: uh, that's the real uh, worry, and that's uh, certainly an, an equally and perhaps more compelling grave concern would be the lawyers and litigants in that situation as well. So the breadth that's being read into the statute by the government cuts uh, virtually across the board. And how can it reasonably be argued that Congress ever intended that 1001 would have such a reach into uh, not just criminal litigation, but into, into civil litigation? What happens when an attorney has a client appear in his office on say, the eleventh hour of a statute of limitations and is seeking the filing of a civil complaint? Under the, the government's view of 1001, that attorney has to think twice about filing that complaint. That attorney has to be concerned where the attorney is not that much concerned today because
3: today under rule... He just doesn't have to lie, that's all. He just, he just doesn't have to lie.
1: But the realities of the situation... The realities
3: is it's a criminal prosecution. It's not a more likely than not kind of, uh, a, a kind of problem. You have to get... Uh... You have to get a jury
1: unanimously to find that he was lying. But what happens, Your Honor, when, the, when the, that client who comes to that lawyer at the 11th hour is making misrepresentations that wind up in that complaint, and the lawyer doesn't fa- find that out until after it's filed under the but present state of law? It's not based
2: on negligence. It's based on a knowing and willful falsification. Mm-hmm.
1: Which, which should, once we look at the facts of this case, afford the court small consolation. If we look at the discovery response statement that was indicted and convicted in this case, what was knowingly and false that protected this this particular petitioner that's going to afford such great protections in future cases that come along before the U.S. Attorney's offices throughout the United States? And the answer is not much at all. We have in this particular case the discovery response. Oh, I turned those over to the prior successor. And then that's litigated in the bankruptcy court, and the documents are ultimately turned over after the bankruptcy judge issues in order to turn them over. I think most people would be startled to come to the conclusion that that, that was deemed knowingly false, indictable, but that, charged that's, and convicted. But
0: that's a finding of fact that, that that can't be challenged here. But it shows with what e- ease, Your Honor. Well, the, 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 this, the, the, this petitioner here did knowingly and intentionally fail to turn something over. Yeah, we are assuming that. Say, you case assume the it course. because a jury found
1: it unanimously in a criminal case. Correct. And, but that demonstrates the ease with which those terms can be interpreted. Well, I don't and know that
6: it does. I mean, it certainly doesn't back up the point that you were making a moment ago in which you were concerned about the negligent lawyer. This was the person who either turned or didn't turn the documents over. He said he did. In fact, he was found not to have done so. That's a pretty far cry from the, from the lawyer that you were concerned with in, in, your, uh, in your hypothetical a moment ago, uh, who simply has a client misrepresent something to him and is guilty, I suppose, of nothing more than, than negligence if there isn't time to check it out before the deadline.
1: Yes, but some of the cases where it's easier to, to draw the line, and if this court views this as one of those such cases adopting the government's argument, we are going to necessarily lead to those grayer areas which, which necessarily impact upon the everyday practice of law.
4: If you want, every, if you want to carve out the judiciary, then do you have a problem in this case because the bankruptcy judge is not an Article Three judge?
1: No, Your Honor, my underst- although that issue was not briefed and the government has never challenged that the bankruptcy judge is part of a court, it's my understanding that the bankruptcy court is a division of the United States District Courts, and that, and it was never contested that this was a judicial proceeding.
3: What is so sacrosanct about lawyers? There are businessmen who all the time have to file uh, uh, responses to uh, executive branch inquiries about this, that, or the other things, all sorts of regulations. Uh, and if they if they are found willfully to have uh, misrepresented, they're subject to 1001. What? So lawyers are being treated no differently from anybody else. Why, Why do
1: we establish a special rule for lawyers? It's not that, Your Honor, that lawyers are so sacrosanct or that the litigants are, or that we're asking for an exception to be carved out of 1001 for only their protection. What we're asking is that the reading of 1001 that's consistent with Congress's intent be applied to the statute. And Congress never intended... That every unsworn misrepresentation made in a federal court would subject the person who makes that statement to a 1001. Well, are you country? perfectly
3: willing to say that they assume that every unsworn representation made by any businessman when he fills out, you know, page 2003 of some uh, some form that a federal agency has sent to him—that Congress intended, but not that a lawyer uh, uh, should 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 be held to to honesty as well.
0: Well, we we, we I don't, of course uh, we... it isn't
3: self-evident to me that.
0: Oh, you, you, you must say that Congress did intend that the exact same sort of representations before an administrative adjudication in one of the agencies, it did intend the strictures of the statute to apply there, but it didn't into a judicial proceeding, and yet the the... the, the
1: earmarks of one are very similar to the earmarks of the other. Well, we, we, we submit that the government's contention that disapproving or limiting Bramble is going to cause a, a change of conduct uh, or, or a change of the course of the law, whether it's dramatic or otherwise, is really not borne out by what has happened since the Morgan decision in 1962. In, in fact, the, the interpretation that we are seeking of, of 1001 in no way would constrain uh, the prosecution, and in, in fact, even the United States Attorney's Manual advises against using 1001 in situations such as these, where the statements are made in a judicial proceeding. And returning to the context argument, the context of the word department, under this court's decision in Roland, context is limited to the text of the statute. And what the government is relying upon here is its view of the evolution of the statute, which in essence is another way of saying the legislative history of the statute. It is going outside what Congress intended.
0: Well, it's, it's, but it's relying on Bramblett, which is a decision of
1: this court, a statutory decision. Which we are, uh, are seeking uh, limitation of, of, yeah. of course, in order to be consistent in our argument. Do you
7: happen to know, counsel, if any of the separate states have enacted and enforced statutes uh, of the kind that we're considering here? My rec- particularly against lawyers and judicial proceedings.
1: My, my distant recollection in researching the case was that California had a similar case, a similar statute, and there might have been one or two other states, but I found no decisions applying those statutes to the uh, judicial context.
7: So we, we, we can say, based on that research, and we can check it out, of course, ourselves, that the, the states have not found it necessary to police the legal profession and by criminal statutes of this kind?
1: That is correct, Your Honor. And is, your, indeed, is your client a member of the legal profession? No no, Your Honor, he's a, a litigant. Yes. and but the same considerations that will apply to the legal profession will apply to the litigants, because it is the, the, the statements of the lawyers that are so often factual yes, but, assertions but what in we court. have
0: here is not any statement of any lawyer. But, but a statement of a litigant.
1: Correct. But we can rest assured that if the government's interpretation is adopted, it will be extended well, to misrepresentations well, well, why, why made in we court. Why can
0: we rest assured that way? Brandlin has been on the books for 40 years.
1: But the government's reading of 1001 is not limited to litigants. It's limited. Limited. It's not limited to litigants. It applies to any person who makes any misrepresentation in a federal court. And that's true now,
0: in the exe- even under your theory, in the executive branch. any A, a lawyer, bless their souls... Even if they come in and make represent misrepresentations to
1: the executive branch, is held uh, liable under 1001. And if that's a choice that Congress made in drafting the statute, then that's that's Congress is doing. It's not the yeah, but Bramblet
0: said it wasn't the choice that Congress made. And Bramblet said it goes beyond department.
1: Yes, and we of course are arguing to the contrary. And the the crux of our argument is that at the very least, 1001 raises an ambiguity as to its scope, certainly within the meaning of the term department. And we request reversal of the decision below based upon resolution of that ambiguity in favor of the accused.
0: Thank you, Mr. Morris. The case is submitted.